You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, visit our Patreon at patreon.com backslash metagroup. That's patreon.com backslash M-E-T-T-A-G-R-O-U-P. So welcome everybody. It is January 14th, 2021 at 7.35 p.m. Pacific time. This is Meditation and Attachment um, deepening your practice, and so we're talking about meditation practice. Um, we finished last year by uh, talking about home for the holidays, and uh, now we're all back, I guess, and uh, better for it, I'm sure. And um, and I thought maybe what we would talk about, uh, since it is the new year, and uh, uh, it is uh, the penchants of our culture to set uh, um, goals for the year, uh, resolutions for the year about uh, practice, what the goals of practice might be. Um, I think that uh, the purpose of meditation practice, particularly in the Buddhist tradition is to seek enlightenment in that general sense of enlightenment. So it might be useful to know what that is. Um, and then um, at Metagroup, we, we often work with meditation and attachment because I think that it's useful to uh, pay attention to things that get in the way of uh, organizing your life in such a way that deep practice can be a part of it. They're all householders and so being householders, we have the obligations of the world to attend to in addition to making uh, time, energy, and resources available to practice. And so there's a, gonna be a balance there depending on where you are in your life and what commitments that you've made. Uh, many of us are in uh, relationships. Uh, we have marriages or families, we have children. Um, some of us have uh, a work life or a career life that we value. Some of us have uh, different kinds of uh, creative endeavors that we pursue. So it's all uh, sort of uh, trying to come into balance with that so that you can ha at the same time have resources for the practice. One of the things about uh, having commitments of the people um, you need to use some of the time, energy, and resources you have to support those relationships. If you're coupled uh, and have commingled your financial lives, then you also have to negotiate with your partner about how to, to pull out some of those resources that are shared. <laughs> Excuse me. So Bless you. you. Thanks. <laughs> so that... Uh, you can practice. I know when I first came to a, a practice, uh, I came because there was a lot of suffering in my life and I wanted a way to relieve the suffering. And I didn't really have any concept of enlightenment beyond the fact that enlightened people had no problems and life was easy for them. Um, somehow, I think I even imagined it to, to, that they were free from the cycle of life and death and that they weren't going to get old or, 
whatever it was that I thought about it. It was just completely uh, unrealistic. Uh, maybe it came from Saturday morning cartoons about what uh, enlightened people are like. Uh, Bugs Bunny taking a meditation pose. Um, mainly, uh, or I should say one of the main ways that I have uh, regulated myself uh, over my lifetime is by reading, which I've I've been doing since I was a child. Uh, and uh, I, you know, I'm still reading maybe an hour or two a day, uh, keeping up with things. Um, so uh, it was easy for me to, to uh, read a lot of things about uh, Buddhism, but not practice much. And so I, I was really able in the beginning to form this intellectual idea about uh, how you might want to be if you could uh, uh, get yourself to do that, but wasn't really very practice oriented. It was very hard for me to find a teacher that I was willing to trust, mainly because I didn't trust anybody and I didn't want to get close to anybody. And really what I was looking for was a way not to have to do that. So um, the idea of the, the yogi in the cave living on air seemed like a good one to me. <laughs> I remember in psychotherapy, I, I said something like that to my therapist. Uh, and she said, George, that is the first truly sick thing that you've ever said. <laughs> um, so what I, my pattern in, in, the, in the early part of my practice was to align myself with a teacher, go in way too fast, uh, and then get disappointed. Of course, I was setting up these vast and elaborate uh, obstacle courses for, for them to navigate through, and none of them were able to make it. And I, I then would, in, a, in a sort of a cloud of self-righteous indignation, storm off. Mainly, uh, I was afraid of myself and also afraid of being close to people my early childhood conditioning was one of, you know, uh, a sadistic father and a mentally ill mother and, and the harm they uh, worked up between them and directed at me was extremely painful and uh, left me, you know, really ill-equipped to trust. I did find a teacher eventually uh, when I was in Los Angeles, Shinzen Young, uh, I had an extraordinarily high bar for kindness, uh, which I needed from a teacher, and he actually managed to, to do it. And as, and as elaborate as my obstacle courses were uh, to, to establish trust, he seemed to be able to get through them. Um, mainly, I think that that was because he, he was very well boundaried, and uh, he made it very clear what he was willing to do and not do it in the role as a teacher and that he was well-trained uh, and uh, excited about uh, practice and also excited about the progress that his students were making. And so I started there. He had um, a meditation center at the time in West LA and uh, he, uh, and his uh, students uh, worked out of a, uh, a place in Santa Monica called the Santa Monica Zen Center. And uh, they did uh, Saturday sits and 
they did Sunday sits at the uh, meditation center that he had. And he was a retreat teacher. And at that time, I think he was doing um, four uh, or, or even five retreats in Southern California a year. And so it was easy to uh, organize my life in such a way that I could go to a retreat uh, and then uh, hang out in the periphery of his sangha and, uh, and over time begin to develop a sense of safety in uh, the community and also to be engaged uh, by the practices. Uh, he's very sort of technically oriented, which is a good way for my mind to uh, address this. Uh, he's very concrete, which I also like, and uh, very technique oriented. And so you could learn these techniques and then you could practice in the way that he prescribed. And then the insights that would come from that kind of practice would arise and then you you could talk to somebody who knew about those insights. Uh, in the beginning of practice, of course, I was completely unaware of how those kinds of things work. Um, as it turns out, the way in which you practice tends to produce the kinds of insights that you have. And those insights uh, can or cannot lead in a prescribed path, taking you into deeper and deeper levels of insight. Shinzen is a very secular, uh, uh, in a sense, teacher or a mindfulness teacher, I think he would even be happy with, where he's uh, translated the Buddhist teachings into the secular teachings. Um, I think that this comes from somebody of his generation coming into our culture and offering these Eastern uh, teachings uh, uh, to a culture that was largely hostile to them. And so secularizing them made the resistance to them less. And that uh, with him, if you asked him, uh, he would point you in the direction of the original teachings out of which the uh, secularized versions came from. Then there was always a debate about it. So for instance, the, the see here field techniques came out of uh, uh, sitting with uh, uh, the five skandhas or the five aggregates and, and having a hard time for beginning students to grasp the nature of that um, as objects of meditation, but also as an instruction in how we tend to form uh, conceptual reality or what elements are present when conceptual reality is formed. My uh, religious instruction as a child was um, largely absent. I remember coming home from school in fourth grade and there was a form and one of the, the uh, uh, a form that I had to fill out with my parents and return to the school. And one of the, uh, the spaces on the form was religion. So I said to my mother, what religion should I put? And she thought about it for a minute and said, oh, put Protestant, uh, kind of the extent. That was the complete religious education of my uh, childhood. Well, both of my parents uh, had religious uh, parents, religious mothers, but uh, neither one of them embraced the choices that uh, they had made. Later, I discovered that I, uh, my both of my grandmothers were Irish Catholic, both of them were 
first generation famine Irish. Uh, um, you you know, uh, in the history of the prejudices that our country has indulged in, at one time Irish Catholics was at the forefront of that, and and uh, so the the experience of that prejudice was uh, uh, created a bitter experience um, for my uh, grandmothers, and so they abandoned that identification and became British Protestants uh, because it was easier to assimilate and and. Um, you know, climb up socially. I, I, I wonder uh, because it's a, a topic that isn't really uh, at all like it was in my own childhood. That 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 need to better yourself and to really pursue uh, uh, climbing up the, the class structure, uh, which was you know in uh, maybe it's just living in Los Angeles uh, in the the creative community that I do, but it's it's almost never. Uh, a topic and at the same time in my childhood it was a constant uh, there was a constant advocacy for us to maintain that upper middle class perch that we'd have, we'd arrived at when i sat with shinzen and began to talk with him about the things that that were important to me there was a, a strong distinction between the uh, psychological and personal uh, issues that you might have and uh, the path of meditation practice and uh, Shinzen's uh, early conviction that if you just got enlightened, all of the personal and psychological issues that you might have would be resolved and that, that there was no point in dealing with them. Uh, then the, the point was simply to push into uh, the pursuit of enlightenment. Um, I had uh, spent a long time in psychotherapy, and so I went into uh, meditation at the end of that cycle because it had not sufficiently relieved uh, the distresses of my early conditioning. And uh, I uh, was assured by the people that I was working with, who I thought were good people, that there wasn't so much more that psychotherapy could do for me, and that I was really going to have to adjust to uh, the effects. Um, I mean, I had a therapist who, who said to me, your childhood was like your parents cut your legs off. They're, they're not growing back, uh, but can you get on with your life uh, and get as much satisfaction out of it with the limitations that have been imposed by that uh, heavy conditioning that you've had? But it, it, it was, um, A lot of the time not good enough and so that's really one of the energies that fueled my practice and and then to hear from shinzen that uh just getting enlightened would resolve those issues and i didn't have to worry about them i just had to focus on that made a lot of sense to me because the other approaches had not helped i mean um, enough maybe i should say I, it was relieving and i did survive and I, I was able to have a kind of marginal life, wasn't able to really satisfy most of the exploration urges I had because uh, I was emotionally too brittle. And, um, and so I liked that idea and I could uh, organize my life in such a way that I could go to these retreats and I could 
make uh, the minimum amount of money that I needed to keep my very small life going forward. <clears throat> so uh, once I discovered that that would be a good path, I, I, I left my high stress job, I left my business and I got a kind of uh, a job where once a month they asked me what days I was gonna show up and I could just tell them and that was fine. And then I organized my life so that I could go to four retreats a year. So I, I went uh, once a quarter uh, to a meditation treat, mostly with Shinzen. He uh, always said that you should study with whoever you wanted, uh, that you didn't have to make any kind of dedication to him in particular. Uh, try everybody and see who you can learn from where you don't have to do a lot of transliteration. So uh, what, what he was saying was that sit with people who when they explain the practice to you, you really understand it in the way that they're saying it to you so that you don't have to uh, translate what they're saying into language that makes sense to you um, so that you can get a more direct uh, transmission of the teaching from them. And uh, with his uh, way of teaching and, uh, and the, 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 uh, the dedication uh, that I had to it, I, I made rapid progress. So uh, my uh, life at that time uh, was characterized by uh, extreme anxiety states and depression. I think that I regulated the extreme anxiety states with depression. But anybody who's had depression and understands the cycle of that, it, it, it sort of wrecks everything in a way. You come out of the depression and, and finally you have the energy and the capacity to do things and you, or at least I did, sprint at life um, with this terrible uh, feeling that uh, all of that could go at any second if the depression returned. And so I would sprint at life and uh, exhaust myself and then uh, the, the, the cycle of these depressive periods would return and I would be completely derailed and barely able to keep a roof over my head for the period of time that the depression lasted and then come out of that and have to start over again. Uh, so the, the cycle of uh, four retreats a year, once a quarter, I could go to the, the job where I just had to tell them when I was gonna show up, show up and it would be all right and uh, sit in these retreats and begin to develop the capacity to uh, emotionally regulate myself in a way that was different than the early conditioning that I had, which was very useful uh, and uh, made me more and more resilient so that I could explore in wider and wider tracks that overall pattern of my life where I would come out of the depression and be energized and really start at it and be enthusiastic about it uh, and get a little bit into the middle and then the whole thing would uh, come apart was still active. Um, I think with the, the meditation practice uh, and uh, I'm trying to think back. It took about six or eight years of really hard practice to get to a place where the, the cycling depression stopped enough that I, I could actually uh, uh, begin uh, a kind of 
a steady uh, path. So uh, I came to LA in, uh, when I was 39 and started practicing Vipassana then. And by the time I got to my early 50s, uh, I was able to actually keep a roof over my head and keep a job and keep relationships going and create things that I wanted to create. And that was uh, amazing, an amazing difference between these, these bursts uh, and then losing everything. I learned in, in being in, in the uh, community with Shinzen that my idea of what enlightenment was and what enlightenment is aren't actually related very well. well I had this very sort of fantastic uh, uh, idea of a of, of, of magical relief from the, the suffering that I felt that didn't really correspond to uh, anything but this desire to be pain-free. And so then I began to understand more of what we mean by enlightenment in the Buddhist sense, uh, which is that you are able to see uh, the human life in the way that it is, and that you're able to participate in it uh, in this sort of open and free way. I would say that really what we're talking about here is how to be free. And uh, and I was anything but that at the time. I mean, I, my my sense of self was so rigid and so fragile that it, that uh, any kind of perception of rejection would cause these these rather painful outbursts of self that I would then have to withdraw to soothe. And so uh, the that early teaching around the nature of a not or not self was very useful to me to really understand cognitively that the self arises and passes. It's it's related to the conditions of the present moment and isn't solid or it's not ongoing. And what was important for me, it's not damaged by the early conditioning to the point that it that it uh, is uh, this limitation that you have to carry forever. I, I had so solidly convinced myself, uh, and uh, I don't know that it was an <laughs> inaccurate perception of the care that I got, but I really thought that I wasn't worth much and that I was very damaged uh, uh, as a person and that it went all the way to the core of my being and that uh, that natural innocence uh, was uh, corrupted. And so in sitting in the practice, uh, I could see into that, that, that center of that natural, lively innocence and see that it was intact and had not been corrupted by the conditioning that I had experienced. And this was that, that beginning opening into the sense of real freedom that I could touch back into that and I could begin to uh, understand these constructions that I made to defend myself and that I could see into the, the nature of them and that they were ephemeral and that I actually didn't need to hold on to them so rigidly so that I could begin to move out of them into a place of a more spontaneous and free existence. Um, but I also was able to see that the conditioning had created these automatic responses 
And one of the things that I find so useful about meditation is that it really does get into these automatic responses. Uh, and one of the reasons that that's important and, and not just understanding it cognitively is because the, the whole cycle of response is complete and you're engaged in the action by the time the conscious mind engages enough to analyze and recommend a different uh, tact. Uh, if you're continuously mindful, but if you're not, you're often engaged in, in behaviors that are very similar to the ones in the past uh, that produce these uh, outcomes that are less than ideal. So we, we come into this uh, understanding of the nature of karma and how that works. Also, what I find so found so useful is that my understanding of the circumstances uh, that were happening in the moment uh, wasn't necessarily a complete understanding, and my liking or not liking it was not the same of, as whether it was good or bad, which was also a wonderful opening. So, can you track this? Um, process of taking in the data, so that absolute or ultimate uh, reality experience, monitor the processing of that into conceptual reality, and then uh, being free to act in a way that produces a skillful response to the present moment so that the karma that you create is beneficial not only to you but also to the other beings that you're uh, traveling in the world with so that became this idea or this under, this deeper understanding uh, of what enlightenment is and then also this process of pursuing it one of the things about shinzen and shinzen's community that i i found was not as satisfying uh, as it might be was that the, the secularization or the, the, the making of uh, mindfulness out of the Buddhist traditions was so complete that the, that the references and the, and the exploring of the more traditional teachings was not available uh, so much. And so I did look for other uh, uh, avenues. Uh, many of you in Los Angeles may know that I taught at uh, Against the Stream Buddhist Meditation Society for 13 years and that in uh, uh, and that one of the things that I, I was able to do there because uh, the center was quite open to the different kinds of teachings that uh, came through was to uh, take this uh, understanding of uh, uh, Western psychology and, and use uh, the meditation practice to support sort of changes there. Um, uh, over the years of practicing with Shinzen, where uh, he uh, said that just getting enlightened would relieve the underlying psychological issues, uh, I got a deeper and deeper insight into the nature of, of the human condition, but it didn't relieve anything. And so I became uh, disillusioned by that idea that it was simply a matter of uh, insight. And the other aspect was that the, uh, uh, and certainly uh, 20 years ago, uh, 
this was much more prevalent. There was very little emphasis on uh, ethical training, very little em emphasis on heart practices. There was this put hard push into uh, insight practices. And so you would have these people who developed quite a depth of insight into the nature of the human uh, condition, but were not at all relieved of the, of the conditioned behavior that caused harm in, in the communities that they were in. And this was very troubling to me, mainly because uh, coming from a history of the kind of uh, sadistic abuse that I had, uh, 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 including sexual abuse, I was very sensitive to improprieties uh, between uh, power relationships in, in the communities that I was involved in and was often uncomfortable about that. One of the things about Shinzen's community, which I quite liked, is that that that, that was very settled and it wasn't permitted, and it created a sense of safety there for me. But that wasn't always true in other communities that um, uh, were around. Um, I quite by chance heard a lecture by Alan Shore on attachment theory. And he described uh, the talk he was giving was a, a 45 minute talk on um, disorganized attachment. So if you've, if you've looked even in a cursory way into, into a, attachment theory, there's so little evidence on disorganized attachment that you might think that it was a rarity. And actually it's one of the larger groups in attachment uh, uh, outcomes. In 10 minutes, he described the cycle of a life of somebody who had disorganized attachment, and he described perfectly this cycle of uh, sprinting at life and then everything falling apart and then withdrawing into a period of depression and these cycles of trying and, and a lot of starts and some middles and no finishes. And it was completely, mind-blowing to have somebody in such a coherent and concise way describe the uh, the uh, issues that I had been trying to, to work through in, in therapy for 20 years in 10 minutes. And then I immediately uh, rushed out to see if I could find somebody who could help me with this. And, and there simply was nothing available. Uh, most of the time, people had not even heard of it. Um, but I did recognize that in the way that he described it and what he, what he thought needed to happen was uh, something that I could work with with meditation. Uh, the mentalizing component where you have to track your thoughts and the emotional regulation component where, you, where you, can, you need to develop positive skills for regulating emotion. All of these things were things that I had been attempting to work on in my own meditation practice. So I began that as a personal practice and uh, Shinzen around uh, 2000 asked some of his senior students to start teaching. And so I began to teach and I, I taught a very straight Shinzen course, but it wasn't interesting to people. I mean, so not interesting to most people, too technical, too heady was usually the criticism of it. Um, I want something that makes me feel better. I want something that 
Does it make me more anxious? Does it make me more scattered? Um, and uh, somebody said to me, you know, you used to be the angriest person around and now you're not angry anymore. Uh, maybe you could teach a class on that. And so I transitioned from teaching about uh, just teaching the straight Shinzen curriculum to teaching a course called Overcoming Anger. And I, I had a, a good amount of students who came. And then uh, at the end of that series, somebody came up to me and said, you know, anger isn't my issue, fear is, fear is my issue. Can you teach a class on fear? And so I taught a class called Overcoming Fear. And then somebody came up to me and said, you know, anger and fear are not my issues. Sadness is my issues. Could you teach a class on sadness? And so I taught a class on sadness. And then somebody came up to me and said, you know, anger, fear, and sadness are not my issues. Shame is my issue. Could you teach a class on shame? And then this light bulb went on. I'll teach a class on overcoming difficult emotions and I'll get everybody in one class. Since it was essentially the same class. And uh, so I taught that class and somebody came up to me at the end of the class and said, you know, it isn't the difficult emotions that are a problem for me. It's the relationships that cause the difficult emotions that are the problem for me. And then the light bulb really strove and I thought, they're talking about attachment. That's what, what they really want to understand. And so I began to teach uh, the Meaningful Life class, which was about the, uh, that personal practice of mind, which was invested, which was meant to uh, overcome uh, attachment disturbances. Uh, so why am I telling you this story when we're talking about how you organize your practice? because I wanted to give you a sense about how I organized my practice and how these insights came up and how I moved from investigation to investigation because one of the things uh, that is necessary for you to continue a robust practice is that it's actually satisfying. The meditation practice that you're doing is actually satisfying and it's, it's improving the conditions of your life so that you feel excited about putting the time, energy, and resources into practice and not into something else. Uh, most of us have a limit. Everyone has a limit of time and energy. Resources vary quite a bit, usually quite unequally in our culture. So um, what is it that you want to get out of this? In my first meditation class, which was at Ordinary Dharma in Venice in 1992, uh, the teacher had us all go around the class and say what, what you wanted. And I said in, in, in a kind of naive earnestness that actually I, I wanted to be enlightened and that's why I came to practice. And the class, including the teacher, erupted in laughter as if that was a completely absurd uh, thought about uh, practice. Um, but I haven't changed my mind about that at all. <laughs> I really want to get uh, uh, to be uh, free and to be able to explore really to the very edges of where I can find meaning and to really be out there uh, and, to, and to take those big risks. Uh, and not have the conditioned self limit me because I'm afraid to do it, or that I, I haven't been able to build a, 
a social support system that, that, that would be necessary for me to be able to take those risks. As a householder, uh, you know, monastics, of course, have the, the sangha, the community of uh, dedicated practitioners that are, are meant to support that kind of things, but we don't have that as householders. How are you going to uh, be able to go deep and to, to pull apart those limiting beliefs that keep you from having that, that level of fulfillment? And you're going to do it by organizing your practice in such a way as that you can move into and explore the things that are preventing you from having that and to, to free yourself from the obligation to them. Free yourself from the, the beliefs that uh, say that you can't have that. And so each of our conditioning is different. And so we're needing to look at what it is that we need to do. And then we need to have people who will help guide us so that we know what to do in order to come through the obstacles that each of us face, which are not generic or uh, in that sense uh, uh, applicable to everyone. Um, I know that uh, one of the, the advantages uh, in, in retrospect I had was that it was so hard for me to get anything going that I didn't really have a lot going. And so there wasn't a lot to give up in order to organize my life to practice as much as I, I did. But I also required a ton of practice in order to, to get the small things going that other people may already have developed just through the, the nature of their own uh, experiences. My main motivation in my early career, I worked in the film industry for a long time, was revenge. I wanted to get myself into a position of power and I wanted to have enough money to just fuck over everybody who fucked me over. That was my entire motivation. So the work suffered. <laughs> As I got deeper in to the meditation practice, of course, all of that gets wrecked because your heart cracks open. And then suddenly revenge is no longer a fuel. Anger is no longer a fuel. Uh, and then you can't do that anymore. That was one of the startling things about these subsequent layers of, of uh, insight is that the old way and the old motivations were not holding very well. And there was a period where I felt quite lost in terms of what I would do uh, because those things that had propelled me, that had driven me for so long, just weren't viable anymore. They fell away with uh, remarkable speed. And so part that's also uh, one of the things that can happen depending on how you have organized your life. So I would say uh, the goal of all of this practice of, is to be free and to be happy and to to love uh, to love the people around you and, and take as good a care of them as you can and to feel a sense of fulfillment in doing that without needing to get something as payment from them for doing that um, to delight 
in the people around you. It's, it's a remarkable experience to uh, carefully select the people that are around you so that you go from one experience of delight to another. Um, just be, being in their, their company, just, just because of the way that they are. And that's, I think, one of the extraordinary things about this uh, way of being in the world. To be able to see things clearly the way that they are. So I would say you need to organize your life in such a way that you have time, energy, and resources to practice, and then you also need to find somebody uh, that can uh, help facilitate your practice, and that you need to find uh, people uh, who are also practicing so you have somebody to talk to about it because the experiences of seeing into the nature of the human condition is very different than believing in a conceptual reality, that sort of negotiated uh, reality between people that's based on um, uh, only the uh, interpretations of conceptual reality that each person is putting out. How's that as a description of practice and a suggestion in how to organize your own. The techniques uh, are easy to find in terms of the insights that you need to have. What's harder to discover is what it is that you need to know. And that's really where the dialogue with the meditation teacher comes in. You can describe to the meditation teacher uh, what it is that you, you want to discover and and then they can point you in the direction of which practices to do. Once you get past developing a basic level of concentration, uh, most of the other techniques are readily available to you. So let's do a, a period of practice now. Um, we'll do uh, some insight practice. Uh, beginning with a, just a period of breath counting to settle everything and then just a basic, easy, see, hear, feel practice. So go ahead and take your meditation posture. So how did that go? Hi, it was great to hear your story again, George. Um, thank you. Uh -huh. um, so there were moments in between see, hear, and feel tonight where I couldn't, I, could, I had a hard time noting, um, uh, which was interesting um, and more poignant tonight. I don't know uh, when I find myself unable to focus on a sense gate, um, do I just take more time in between to let it formulate? What's happening? You're, uh, you're drawn to a sense gate and then this, uh, the activation ends and where's your awareness? Well, um, I'll be in between. Uh, forgive me if I'm not answering your question. I'm trying to... Um, no, I'm just trying to understand what's happening because uh, if you're not if your awareness is not uh, 
engaged with any particular sense gate, where is it? It feels like it's trying to decide which it's oh. it's um, okay. a new place where so, it yeah. feels like a new place. So then what I would say is that, that that's the activity of mind, uh, which has not yet uh, chosen what the next uh, sense uh, activation is to focus on. Um, exactly how it feels. Yeah. Uh, So um, what would probably uh, be useful is then a free-floating noting strategy. So you just watch the, the, the uh, activity of mind until it cho chooses an object to focus on. And then when it lands on the new object, note that uh, and label that, and then pay attention to how long it stays there or whether it withdraws and then begins to flow into something else. Uh, each time when mind makes up uh, its mind and lands on a particular place, note it as the sense gate that, that you're in uh, and just get used to that freely floating sort of slow uh, process of labeling. That's perfect because I tend to um, label on the end of the out breath. Right. So I feel like that might be limiting. Yeah, it sounds like the other approach, the freely moving approach is better for that, the way that it's going. Oh, well done, perfect, thank you. Oh, thanks. Someone else? Okay. George, can I ask a question? You can. Um, so my problem is actually the opposite. It just, or maybe I, I don't know if it's the opposite, but like it, my, like it changes so fast that I can't label it fast enough. So when that happens, uh, you just drop the labeling and just see if you can keep up noting directly, but also understand that you don't have to, to get everything. Oh, okay. So I don't need to get everything. Cause I feel like by the time I label something that that's already passed. So it's like, oh, I gotta label this one now. So it makes me really anxious. <laughs> Yeah, so there's a difference between noting and labeling. When, when the, the changes are too rapid to, 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 to get to the stage of labeling, then you drop the labeling and just note directly. So, so when you're noting it, just like you know what it is, but you just don't say it in your mind, is that what it is? Yeah, you know where okay. you are and you, you soak into the sensing experience as long as it lasts and then go on to the next one. Okay, thanks. Uh -huh. Good. Someone hey, George. Uh huh. Um, yeah, yeah. I would second uh, the appreciation for uh, your your personal story. It really does help to. Uh, well, it really resonates. And um, one of the things that I'm experiencing, and it's been a while, is uh, the intellectualizing. Just kind of looking at this, well, as a almost an academic exercise and uh -huh. the the practice is waning except when i i go out and and do kind of a walking meditation so what was the nut that you cracked to be able to get you back to more of a grounded practice um i 
I think the thing that changed for me was that when I started to sit with Shinzen, the, the progress was so rapid that it, I, I was hungry for more of it. And I, I, was, uh, I had uh, enough relief from practicing in the way that I did that that also was part of the thing. Um, what, what you might consider, Harley, is being more engaged with the teacher so that, that your practice is more focused. Uh, I did notice that when I took on regular contact with a, with a teacher, I, I would feel compelled to practice so I had something to talk about. <laughs> George, uh, George, well, I, I'm just like you. I only have regular contact with my wife and two kids. I don't, you know. Right. <laughs> There's uh, everybody else's. <laughs> it's it's uh, there. There's there's too much baggage to break through that. But yeah, okay. I'll, so I'll try. all I can say is Harley, jump off a cliff. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks, thanks. <laughs> Someone else. Uh, hi, this is Rachel. Um, hi. Uh, so I um, I put it in the chat too, but um, uh, I I guess um, this is highly unusual for me to actually speak up during something, but um, I have been practicing for some years, and um, you know I never really worked with a teacher and. Um, I see chronic pain and um, all, all of the other symptoms I have with chronic illness, honestly, I see them as a problem and I have not been able to change that. It's, I'm in a like chronic pain and illness group meditating and we do like, um, you know, um, compassionate phrases towards ourselves, And I just, I, I don't, I, I have such a shitty attitude towards my chronic pain and I can't change it. I don't know how. So I don't know what to do about that. And when I sit, I just think like, if I didn't have chronic pain, I would be able to focus more. Uh -huh. um, well, the uh, the chronic pain issue is a is really challenging, and, and there are a number of, of of things to try to work with it. Um, you know. Uh, a deep equanimity practice is one thing that comes to mind. Uh, a, a, a relentless suppression of the uh, afflictive self-generated uh, talk is another one. Um, just uh, a ton of positive uh, self-practice. Uh, that uh, compassion might be, um, because it's empathetic, uh, more challenging than doing, say, a meta practice, which is just sympathetic. Um, but um, have you, Shinzen has a book on chronic uh, pain and practice. Have you seen it? Uh, no, I haven't. Um, I th it's either called, I think it's called Breakthrough Pain. Um, and I think that he has some, uh, that it, part of the that is with uh, has some guided meditations on it. Uh, that's one of his specialties is pain. Uh, he worked for many years with uh, Shirley Fenton, who was one of his uh, 
partners and uh, she had uh, terrible pain and they worked, uh, that's where he developed that system. Mm. I appreciate that, I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, and I, I think he's just re-released re it in a, an updated form and it has a, the, the, an audio version of the meditations. Okay, I'll look up for that. Great. Thank you. Uh-huh. Someone else? All right. Um, thank you for coming to class. Uh, we'll continue in the new years ex exploring uh, both the hard side of the practice and the, the inside side of the practice. What we have coming up at uh, Metagroup is tomorrow night, Friday night at 7.30 Pacific time, I'm going to be reading from my book and having a conversation about it um, with uh, Katie Delaney, uh, who's part of the San Francisco Dharma Collective. So uh, it's through them. So the link is uh, through their website. If you're on our mailing list, we'll send it out in the morning. And then Saturday, we're starting the uh, level one series. Uh, so for the next two months, uh, every other Saturday, we'll have a day long on the meditation and attachment material. Uh, so that's starting on Saturday. This spring, we'll start another level two. The level two we, we have is uh, uh, currently full and going. And then uh, uh, we'll have a summer retreat, which will be uh, virtual. Uh, uh, hopefully, <laughs> fingers crossed, um, uh, the, the, the year-end retreat uh, will be uh, in person, but you never know. It might, might have to wait until a year from the summer. Um, I'm hoping that we break around on the new center that we're working on in February. And if that happens, uh, I'll give you an update on that, but until that happens, and we, um, we'll just think of it as an idea that we're having, having uh, developed. Uh, the meditation uh, instruction is offered on a dana basis. Dana is the Pali word for generosity. Uh, I offer the teachings freely, but I do hope that you'll support my, myself and also the work that Metagroup is doing through donations. You can find a link for that uh, either on our website or in the email you received about the class if you got one. Thank you for coming and we will see you uh, next week. Thanks. Thanks, George. Bye. Thanks, George. Thanks, Harley. Bye.